the mysterious vigilante is in the news again. A little more than two hours ago, in an 8th Avenue subway underpass, two men were shot. One died on the spot. The other managed to reach the street before he collapsed. He died shortly afterward in the hospital. Both had long criminal records. The vigilante himself may have been wounded. Good evening, Mr. Cursor. Or should I say, Mr. Vigilante. Welcome to Now Playing's Death Wish Retrospective Series. If a man really wants to protect what's his, he has to do it for himself. Hosted by Arnie. You're cocked, locked, and ready to rock. I'll say. Stuart. Well, he did seem a bit odd. Not only odd, the guy is crazy. It's that simple. And Jacob. I admire you. I'm a real fan. These podcasts contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. You believe in Jesus? Yes, sir. Well, you're going to meet him. Listener discretion is advised. No judge, no jury, no appeal, and no deals. It's showtime. Today, we cast our verdict... On Death Sentence, starring Kevin Bacon, Garrett Hedlund, Kelly Preston, Aisha Tyler, and John Goodman, directed by James Wan. This is the now-playing co-host who's got a podcasting thing about me. I surely do, Arnie. This is Stuart. And this is your loving and loyal kiss-ass, Jacob. Death Wish, sort of. In between the final Charles Bronson, Death Wish 5, and Bruce Willis, there was this thing that came out in 2007 that no one probably noticed, but is at least connected to a sequel book to Death Wish. Yeah, we talked about this a little bit with our Death Wish 2 podcast. Author Brian Garfield, he didn't like the Death Wish movies. He wrote a book that told his continuing tale of... Paul Kiersey, kind of like Clive Barker did with his Scarlet Gospels, putting the final nail in Pinhead's coffin. Brian Garfield did something with Paul Kiersey. I don't think it was this movie, but... No, if, if it's a response to those movies, then it's not this movie. This movie is not true to source material, I'm guessing. It isn't. I did read it. And again, it would have been difficult to make that movie. Would have been interesting. Maybe someday somebody will. But Death Sentence, this movie, I don't think has one element that is connected to that book. They took the title. (laughs) On the page, it was that they took the Kersey character. He wasn't even called that in the book. But he went to Chicago and he found out that when you cause vigilante justice, it inspires a whole bunch of people to pick up guns. And maybe you know the right people to kill, but they don't. And so there was a lot of copycats that were causing more harm than good. And so it was really that lesson being hammered pretty hard. That if nothing else, even if you think you had the right to kill this person for whatever reason, you could be starting a chain of events that you can't control. So much more interesting than what we're going to discuss tonight. (laughs) I'll agree that what we're going to discuss tonight doesn't go at all in that direction, and that's something I'd be interested in doing. I may check to see if Audible has an audiobook of that. Garfield is happy with this movie, though. Because he got a check? He said that in its cinematic way, it makes the same point the book makes, and that's the thing that counts. 
Okay, I haven't read the book, but I I don't know. Based on Stewart's description, I don't know if that's true. I would say this much. This movie at least ends on a note that will have you challenge whether the vigilante did the right thing or not. It will actually be a point of discussion, something that I don't think we ever discussed with Charles Bronson was, did he have the right, will he regret his decision? True, and that's my feeling on this, despite the fact that it's called Death Sentence. It feels very much like a Death Wish remake with a little bit more of a conscience. It fits in this Death Wish series we're doing, and James Wan, this was his first non-horror film. He was very excited to be able to break out of that genre. Nowhere in the meager bonus features on this DVD did they discuss this movie being based on a book did they discuss the author or anything like that but james wan did say how much he liked 70s and 80s revenge films including things like death wish yeah we all know that he was eager to get out of the horror ghetto he doesn't consider himself a horror director but this movie put him back in that ghetto that he had done saw and he had done dead silent which is a movie about a possessed puppet that wasn't a big (laughs) hit and wasn't very good but this was his chance his first chance to get away from the genre and it sent him right back to insidious (laughs) i hadn't even heard of this film that i know of for some reason it's like in the back of my brain if kevin bacon is in something i'll pay a little bit more attention to it so i feel like i knew he did some kind of family revenge film back then that said he and ethan hawk have like morphed into the same person for my mind so i might just be thinking of the purge i do remember the ads what they sold was and all the trailers that i saw that ran it was a summer movie it came out in august but they did push it as some kind of money maker for the summer and what they pushed was kevin bacon is going to lose control they showed a lot of him shaving his head and arming up all that stuff that really comes at the climax Yeah, I usually, you know, can recall trailers and movies, even if I don't see the movie. I'm like, oh yeah, I kind of vaguely remember seeing a trailer for that. This, no memory of it. Never seen it, never heard of it. Don't recall ever seeing a trailer for it. You bring up an interesting point, though. Kevin Bacon. What does he mean? What does he represent? When he stars in a movie, I always find it weird at this point. Early in his career, he was the dancing dude, right? Footloose. Yes. To all the kids of the 80s, he was a lighthearted, fun presence. And then something happened around Mystic River, and I feel like he has been playing this role ever since. You know, he had a TV series where he was hunting a serial killer, and yeah, he's just had lots of dark movies in which he's either afflicted with killing people or trying to stop people killing people. I would go far before Mystic River, actually. The first time I saw him do this was a movie I watched because it was him with Christian Slater, Murder in the First. I don't know if you ever saw that one. It was kind of like a primal fear with Kevin Bacon instead of Edward Norton. Yeah, there were so many legal thrillers. It was a Grisham-y kind of thing, and I didn't see it, no. And then I thought he played against type in Hollow Man, where he was a bad guy. So he wanted to take on different things. But what I found was, starting around the time of this movie, I think is when the whole Bernie Madoff thing came out, and Kevin Bacon... Bacon and Kira Sedgwick went public and are like, well, we have nothing now. All our retirement, all our money, it's gone. All of our artistic integrity, we need jobs. 
Ah, okay, that makes a little sense. Look, the last thing I really remember him in was Tremors. <laughs> yes, The Hollow Man, I did see that. I saw Mystic River. I think of Kevin Bacon, I go to Footloose or Tremors. I don't know where he was at this point in his career, except, you know, I just think of, he's a joke. He's the six degrees of Kevin Bacon. I, I don't think of him acting anymore, but I guess he was still doing stuff, and it, it was weird to see him pop up. This is like the most current thing I think I've seen him in. Yeah, I think what's weird is him in a featured role. Usually, the reason why he was six degrees of Kevin Bacon was he worked with everyone, He'd pop up in JFK or Few Good Men or some movie that's populated with lots of A-list celebrities. But he himself is not usually a focus because I'm not sure what he brings. I'm not sure what his star power is other than maybe average guy that can be damaged. Ethan Hawke is maybe a good comparative, aren't you? Jacob, you said this is the most recent thing. Let's not forget, he was Sebastian Shaw in X-Men First Class. He was the bad guy in that. Love that movie. Yeah, I, now I remember that he was the bad guy in there. I just, <laughs> I don't think of Kevin Bacon unless he's in a starring role, I guess. I think what he has is an ability to be just a good actor. He can take on a variety of roles and he has challenged himself. I got to see this horribly awkward 30-minute conversation between Kevin Bacon and three film students that was a bonus feature on the disc. They were hurting for bonus features on this disc. I guess they wanted to put no money into it. And Bacon did talk about how he worked really hard to make a name for himself. He wanted to be a star. He wanted the adulation of people. But now he picks roles that he thinks are interesting or artistic challenges and so yeah you'll see him pop up one of the last things i saw him in around this time is there was an episode of will and grace that he guest starred in during sweeps week where he and will did the footloose dance together and things so he can still be comedic and he can still break out those dance moves if a part calls for it but he can also bring this other kind of damage thing i didn't think He'd be well cast in X-Men First Class, but I was surprised how much I did like him in that movie, and I do find him a pretty good presence in all types of things. I mean, Wild Things, Tremors, like you mentioned, Apollo 13, The Air Up There, A Few Good Men. I mean, these are all movies I saw because Kevin Bacon was in them. All right, Wild Things I might have seen for other reasons. But... Yeah. Yeah, but for The Air Up There, you gotta be a Kevin Bacon <laughs> fan to see that one. Yeah, I, you couldn't do that. But yeah, to me, Dan, I mean, all the movies that I can think of for the last 20 years, The Woodsman, The River Wild. Yeah, it's like he wanted to prove to people I can be a bad guy and then forgot how to be the lighthearted guy. I haven't seen him be light and funny and I don't know when. Well, Tremors, the TV movie's coming out and he's in it. Remember what I said about needing a paycheck? Yeah. <laughs> people keep wondering if we'll do that retrospective. <laughs> As far as an upgrade to Charles Bronson, this seems like a good fit. I mean, maybe it's not as perfect as Bruce Willis. I mean, Bruce Willis has had the career exactly like Charles Bronson. But Kevin Bacon, not an action movie star, but has been in action movies and certainly can do this kind of dark, dramatic work when needed. And the thing is with Kevin Bacon, you know, the way you talked about the Paul Kiersey character in the book, you don't think action star. At least that's not what I pictured as you talked about him. So it's taking someone not known as being an action star star someone yeah that just doesn't look like a badass or it doesn't have a reputation for being a badass that's it is definitely a different way to go a better way to go maybe because it defies expectations to see him make that transformation right so with this movie, did you guys see the rated or the unrated cut? Because I did pick up a DVD. It's a little bit harder to find. It had both cuts on it. I saw the hour 40 minute cut that streams on Amazon. I think that's the theatrical. Yeah, you saw the R-rated cut. I'm not sure. What's the difference? 
about six minutes of dramatic scenes. Here's the biggest go-to scene I could tell you. If you saw a scene in a funeral parlor where the gang members shake down a mortician to give their young dead gang member a funeral for 200 bucks, then you saw the unrated cut. Or really, it's a director's cut. It's got six more minutes of scenes that were filmed that provide a little bit more characterization, but they call it unrated, and you think with James Wan, that's like, oh my god, there's brains everywhere. The gore is exactly the same. The difference is six minutes of character scenes. Okay, I didn't have that, so I saw the R-rated version. Alright, I saw the unrated. I did not see both, but I did read a breakdown of both. I felt like since it was character scenes, I was only planning on watching it once. I decided to go with more the director's vision. Alright, well that means you get to do the plot summary too. How about it? Kevin Bacon plays Nick Hume. He's your normal middle-class guy. He's an insurance agent. He's married to Helen, played by Kelly Preston. Talk about a person. What the hell is she doing? <laughs> I feel like she spent her entire life crying. <laughs> I know she spends her, this movie doing that. <laughs> and they have two sons, hockey star Brendan and less special Lucas. One night while coming back from a hockey game in the city, a group of thugs attack and kill Brendan at a gas station. The event was a ritual, young Joe making his first kill to be accepted into the gang. But Joe is hit by a car and arrested. Yet the DA says they can only make a plea deal for Joe to get three to five years, so Nick fakes a bit of a memory loss so Joe goes free. Nick did that just so he could confront the young gangbanger and take revenge for Brendan by stabbing and killing Joe. But Joe was the younger brother of gang leader Billy, played by Garrett Hedlund. As Nick was spotted in the neighborhood around the time of Joe's killing, Billy gets the gang together to go after the insurance agent. They first track him to his office, but he escapes, killing one gang member in the process. But while running, he lost his briefcase, and the thugs get his home address. Nick goes to the police, and Detective Jessica Wallace, played by Aisha Tyler, puts two cops outside Nick's home. But the thugs kill the two cops, they invade the house, and shoot, presumably killing, Nick, Helen, and Lucas. But really, they only killed Helen. Nick and Lucas survive, though Lucas is in a coma. So Nick breaks out of the hospital and goes for his final revenge. He first goes to buy some guns from local mob boss Bones, played by John Goodman. Bones sells the guns to Nick, but reveals he is Billy and Joe's father. Still, he gives Nick permission to kill his unruly oldest son. But Bones goes to warn Billy, who shoots his antagonistic old man. Huh? You have to explain that beat to me later. It may be some of the cutscenes. Mm. Nick hunts down the gang members and kills them all, though he is fatally shot in the neck during the shootout. Bleeding out, Nick returns home to watch home movies of his family before all this happened. And as he dies, Detective Wallace arrives to say that Lucas is coming out of his coma and is expected to recover as credits roll. Ah, yes, the perfect American family. We're treated to that pretty heavy here at the beginning here. They really do want to oversell the normalcy of it all so that they can have somewhere for Bacon to go. And I like these scenes. It reminds me almost of a follow-up to She's Having a Baby, right? That ended with, like, home movies of Kevin Bacon and his newborn son. Here we are about 20 years later, and the kids are getting close to 20 years old. And I was surprised to see this boyhood in a capsule type of thing, because when we see him with two young kids, and all I know about this movie is I'm watching a Death Wish movie directed by James Wan. I watched no trailers. I didn't know anything about the plotting. I just looked and I'm like, 
Well, I'm seeing a lot of dead meat on camera here, and I didn't expect to see them grow up so fast. Yeah, I guess this is fine for opening credits to show you them growing up, to show you the dynamics. One's a hockey player. This is the family. Talking about trying to oversell, like, how wholesome this family is. I mean, the, the fact that Kevin Bacon, his character Nick Hume, is going to be a risk assessment manager. Oof. It's on the nose. He even has a moment where he reads what the normal American family is and feels relieved that he's achieved that, that he has avoided risk his entire life and has reached this pinnacle. Now he's a yuppie. Everything is great. And so, of course, we could take him down a peg right at the kickoff here. Yeah, the one thing I don't get from Kevin Bacon ever is nerdy. When he talks about balancing equations and things, it does not feel like words naturally coming out of his mouth. I'd almost feel like you could even go further with this normalcy. The movie I kept drawing parallels to is Michael Douglas and Falling Down and the way he had those thick horn-rimmed glasses to start with and things. I kind of see that that's what was written for Kevin Bacon here, but he just looks too athletic and too much of a jock to really make me think he's the guy who's coming up with forecasts and actuarial tables and probabilities. No, he, but they bought some kind of software that did all the reporting for him. He's like, let me read you what this new software figured out. Uh, you know what? I buy it. Well, this is James Wan. I mean, when you look at The Conjuring, when you look at Insidious, he takes the time to establish those families. He wants you to fall in love with families so that then he can bring evil and horror upon them. That's his way in. He knows that he needs to work this. So it hits a lot of notes. I'm not saying he does it badly. I'm just saying I can feel the setup here. It's very obvious. It's very efficient, too. Within 22 minutes, we've got the whole movie set up for us here. It's kind of amazing that 22 minutes in, we've already had Kevin Bacon as Vigilante losing it. Yeah, it's just too bad they don't know what to do for the next hour. But I agree. Like, they get to this real quick. They set up this family. Lucas, the younger brother, is jealous of the older brother because he's the big hockey jock. And dad's taking him to the game while mom and little bro have to stay home. Well, little bro had a soccer game. The little brother seems to have quite the persecution complex but he's just as much of an athlete as just a different sport. We do get a scene in the cut I watched that I did think in retrospect was a little bit needless of young Lucas getting in trouble at school. He told a teacher to shove a pen up his ass and his mother, Kelly Preston, is the dean of the school where both boys go and so she's trying to decide of a good punishment for him and one of the things that suggested this helps build I think Lucas's complex is she's like well the hockey team needs a towel boy maybe you could do that as your punishment and he isn't too happy to be his brother's towel boy yeah I'm not sure why we needed this storyline of the forgotten family I guess you would do it if we wanted to call death sentence the drama about a family ripped apart like ordinary people one son that's the golden boy dies and the younger one is feeling like he could have died as well that his parents no longer acknowledge him that story is usually told dramatically but I don't feel like this is a drama I feel maybe only sometimes are they concerned with family dynamics I'll just say now, this feels like a Lifetime movie that they brought James Wan in to do some really gory scenes every now and then. But for the most part, it feels like a really bad family drama. Like this whole thing with Lucas and his dad's coming to come around to him. You know, Lucas, oh, you wish I was the one who died. Like, ugh, it's bad. 
I don't think it's that bad, honestly. I think it's good that there's some characterization here. It should be good characterization. This is bad character building. I wish they'd done more with it. There's a scene where Lucas goes to the gas station where his brother was killed. I like that he's trying to come to terms with it on his own. Really, the underserved person in this, and I mean this when I said it in the plot summary, Kelly Preston, how hard up are you for a job that this seemed like a good role? Hey, she doesn't get raped, and it's a Death Wish type movie, so I guess there's some enticement there. Yeah, that is the surprise, that it is not her that gets shot here as the inciting incident. It's Golden Boy, which, of course, it had to be that is set up pretty heavily here that he's the tough guy and he's the one that's going to bring all the glory and that he's reached a point of manhood a big parallel is going to be drawn between two families the humes are the ideal family and then we have the darleys who are going to be the anti-family which you're not going to get until really the end of the film though they try to keep that a secret we see it evolve i suppose but the point is as this golden boy brendan is rising to manhood and playing hockey and potentially going away to college his counterpoint his shadow self joe darley is going to be initiated in a gang ritual that yes leads to a face-off in the gas station it is a myth this whole thing where if you flash someone without their lights that they were going to shoot you as a gang initiation thing like it's an urban legend yeah yeah that has gone around over years it just this gang feels so generic this whole film kind of feels generic but this gang with their red and black i don't know what these cars are chargers or whatever with tribal tattoo markings like if you gotta make someone seem tough with their tattoos but you don't want to put a whole lot of thought in it just do some bad generic tribal tattoos i honestly had a feeling you might call out one of you the improbability of this kind of ritual but i kid you not that i went to college my undergraduate school was on a college that literally bordered gangland and there were gang rituals you didn't have to kill a college student but they literally had competitions how many college students could you beat the crap out of and steal of the student ids and i had friends come to school one day perfectly fine the very next day they're coming into class with a neck brace and on crutches because gang members came to campus and beat the living shit out of them so this was really ringing true to me. It's a little bit more drastic that to be initiated, you have to do a random killing, but I went with this as gang mentality. I don't doubt that there's initiations like that where you gotta beat someone up. It's just the way it's portrayed here is, like, first of all, they shoot the guy running the gas station. Uh, never mind the fact that, you know, the car is gonna run out of gas and have to go to some shady gas station. Nick is gonna look around and see all the homeless people. Ooh, warning, there's homeless people here. It, it's dangerous. If he's such good at risk management, he would have fuel, right? I yes. mean, this is my number one problem with the film. My biggest problem with the entire film is that he was low on gas and the son's like, we're in a shitty neighborhood. Let me go get a slushy, dad. He's going to Canada. He needs to go someplace safer than America. But yet he's fine going into this bad area gas station for the slushy. I wouldn't even eat food from this gas station. Yeah, apparently every time this kid goes to a gas station, he gets a slushy. That's why he gets out of the car. Again, everything here feels very forced, like the way they get to this first step, though it's efficient. But yeah, they're going to shoot the gas station attendant. That could have been the initiation. But no, they got to pull out a machete. I get it. You did saw. So it's going to be like real gruesome. But it's 
lacking credibility for me. It's not that gruesome, and to me, this is the entire setup of the film, is this could happen to you. I don't believe this. I will go to 600 gas stations <laughs> to get a Slurpee, and I bet this won't happen to me. If you go to the 600 wrong gas stations, it may not be a machete killing, but there is a good chance of you getting shivved somewhere along the line. Let me pick the 600 gas stations, and we'll see how you come out of it. I'll come down the middle and say I'm completely fine with this as a setup. I understand where we need to go. I was a little surprised it wasn't the whole family at once. Yes. But, okay, once we pull in here and Dad let me get the slushy, I can sense where it's going. These awful gang people pull up, and yes, the kid's dead. The real question is, they're all wearing masks. How will Kevin Bacon know them? He wrestles the killer to the ground. The others intentionally leave him. They think it's part of the ritual that he's a man now. He has to take public transportation back to the lab. <laughs> they all live in some asylum slash meth lab. They call it the office. During that exchange, he pulls off the mask and the kid gets run over. That felt a little one step too many. I thought that's how Nick was going to find out like who this gang was because there's a dead body there. He could take his wallet or something. But no, Joey just gets up and keeps going. Yeah. And so the question really is, why wouldn't a man who is steeped in bureaucracy and number crunching and all trust the legal system to prosecute this person? The thing is, I think three to five years wasn't enough. It didn't balance the equation. It was too small. The punishment didn't fit the crime. It needed to be more. And so I think he did go with the system. You get this DA character who we never see before or again being like, oh, there's just no way to do it. We're going to get three to five years. The machete disappeared. The gas station had no working video. Bullshit. Every gas station has working video. Like his insurers would have made him put up cameras in that location. Well, they said it was on the fritz, so who knows how long it was broken. But the only evidence against this boy, somehow he didn't even get blood on himself, except his own from the car accident. The only evidence is the eyewitness testimony of the father. And so with that, the DA doesn't feel like it's a good trial case, so... It's only going to be a three to five year plea deal. And Kevin Bacon needs to sell me this moment specifically where he makes a conscious decision. I'm going to let this little gangbanger Joe get out and then I'm going to take matters into my own hands. I don't feel the film gives that enough weight. It tries to have it both ways. It plays it for a shock when Nick stands up and is like, oh, you know, I'm now not sure that this is the guy. When in fact, you got Joe sitting there making little finger gun motions in the courtroom, like I'm gonna shoot you. I think that that needed to be a moment where we saw Nick doing some wrestling with his decision. The way we saw Charles Bronson, you know, he started off with quarters before he went to bullets. This feels all, again, very contrived and forced. There's a whole argument between Nick and his wife about, are you going to the pretrial hearing? Like, the wife doesn't even want to go to the pretrial hearing for the person who murdered her son. It's just weird. And you need that later. So, you know, it causes tension that Nick wouldn't testify and he's going to do something else. I hear that you're angry about it. I wouldn't disagree with anything that you're saying, Jacob. I guess I'm just accepting the movie at face value. It's just kind of rolling off on me. It's going very, very quickly. And again, my sense is that they don't want to make this a legal drama. This is not John Grisham. We're not going to have a debate. This man we need to understand very readily is ready to kill. He has been a lifelong pacifist, I assume, or at least not been confronted with risk. And now can the nerd play ball with the alternative family that kills for fun and for manhood? 
And here's what I'm really liking about this. I thought the whole family would get killed right away. Rape or no rape was really the over under on this. But once I see how this is going, I don't know if the rest of Nick's family is marked for death or not. I kind of assume they are. But what I feel we have here is like one of the most realistic of the Death Wish stories. I know this took the title of a sequel book to Death Wish, but to me this sounds like if the three of us did the Death Wish retrospective series and then we decided to workshop it. Like, Death Wish had a good premise, but it really went off the rails. How could we do this and make it a little bit more dramatic and a little bit more affecting? How would it play in real life? Nick would get killed very quickly. That's how it would go in real life, I feel. And, uh, you know, they make the choice to have him go after the people that killed his son. Whereas Death Wish, that was something that he never had any control of finding. He was going to stop crime in all of its forms in New York City in the 70s. Here, I'm not sure exactly where we're supposed to be. I know they filmed in South Carolina. I think that's where it's supposed to be set based upon the bonus features because I didn't quite get that either. The fact that they say Canada's a long way from here. Yeah, at one point it sounds like John Goodman's trying to do a southern accent, but then towards the end it sounds like he's doing like a New Jersey, New York, Italian mobster things. I'm not sure where this is. You said South Carolina. Are they on De Laurentiis's old stomping grounds? It wouldn't surprise me. But the thing that I believe about this when I say going more honest, though, is I don't see Nick going out to kill the entire gang. It's an eye for an eye. They took his son. He wants Joe. He wants the guy who killed his son. He views it as one and done. And then he picks a knife. He has a machete, it turns out. Nick is somewhere where he has this rusty old machete. But he just picks a knife, tracks down Joe. How does he track down Joe? Is that in the cutscenes that we didn't see? I have no idea how he found him. He followed them. We see the kid leaving the courtroom and hop in the truck. His brother is there to pick him up. Although I suppose we aren't supposed to guess that it's his brother yet. And they drive back to an apartment complex. And so he goes and gets the machete and comes back there and sits there until, I don't know, the guy's not all bad. He takes out his own trash. (laughs) (laughs) I was what I'm like, is he at work? Is he a busboy? He's taking out the garbage? I wasn't sure where they were. Low-ranking gang member gets trash duty, but he's there alone. But Nick can't bring himself to do it right away. I mean, it becomes just, I'm going to beat you. It's really, and I think this is unfortunate. I think Juan made a mistake here. It's a shock when the knife slips into Joe. We see them like punching each other and wrestling. And then all of a sudden, Joe just goes, Ugh! And Nick backs off. And it's not like one of those movies where they're wrestling for the gun and the gun accidentally goes off and which person got shot. You have a knife. It's in your pocket. You obviously know once you've pulled it out and stabbed somebody. Yeah, and I wanted it to be more definitive. I wanted Nick to make the choice, I'm going to kill. Here it feels almost like I had to do it to get away from the guy and that I wasn't going to go through with it. And I think they're just playing too loose with this character's morality about which way is he going to go. It's like they don't want us to think too bad of him for making this vigilante choice when I think that's what the movie is asking us to explore. And I'm not a gore hound, but I'm thinking my expectation with James Wan coming into this film is, yeah, we're going to have some gore and we we can see some limbs getting cut off and have some fun that way. I'm shocked. Yeah, you said it, Arnie, with the cut throat with the machete at the beginning and that wasn't very gory yeah this knife is just stuck in him i don't even see blood coming out i'm i'm just wondering where is that aspect i don't expect this movie to be good but if it could just be over the top like violent or something then i could go with it and i'm not getting that yet 
remember, we said James Wan wanted out of the horror ghetto. I think this was a conscious choice to make this film more appealing to a broad action audience, not a gore audience. And you say you're not expecting this film to be good. I am expecting this film to be good. I mean, we've seen James Wan give us the Fast and the Furious here. I'm expecting to see early signs of this guy leaving the horror genre. I have no complaints in these areas. What really tells me that, again, Lifetime movie is Nick comes home, and I talk about Charles Bronson when he was, you know, did those scenes where he's trying to drink and he's thrown up in the toilet in that first Death Wish movie because he's so shooken up by what he did. Here we get Kevin Bacon in the shower with the most awful synth choir music. This is very bad and very distracting. Like, all of a sudden the angels are, are singing out as he cries in the shower. Okay, here I'm with you. So far, I'm hearing you complain, and I'm like, come on, give the movie a break. It's a movie. But you're absolutely right. James Wan, he can do a lot with camera tricks, and I'm fine with that. He moves this camera every time. It's all over the place. He wants it to be a moving, a literal moving picture. But yeah, this musical choice is later they're going to play Hey Joe by Jimi Hendrix when they find out that Joe was killed. And just on the nose, bad emo rock in just the worst places. Terrible, terrible soundtrack choices oh okay um i agree with you on hey joe and i agree with you on the choir music in the shower but i actually really like charlie clauser's score to this it kind of reminded me of a more metal less industrial version of a saw score there was still a very heavy tiktok beat to it but i like clauser's score in this film quite a bit especially as we get to the end and when we get to the action scenes yes the shower scene was a bit over the top I was just thankful that, unlike in Wild Things, Kevin Bacon decided to keep his trouser snake out of frame this time. Well, here's what I'm feeling. Up to this point, I feel like James Wan is doing his best not to make an action movie. He's making a movie about dramatics. And so I'm thinking, okay, this is about the morality. Should he have done it? And would he change things? And what's going to come out of it? All of these choices up to this point haven't glorified violence. They haven't made us root and fist pump and all of that. It's going to be a long while before he does go Rambo and kill people. It's strange to me that they're going to spend so much time with this character static in this same kind of place of uncertainty and the movie's not really going to do anything with that. It's just basically he's going to keep getting taunted by the gang because the gang's going to figure out relatively easily that that guy that was sitting outside their house was in fact the father of the kid they killed. Yeah, thanks for a newspaper article about Starfish Capital Enterprises, the, the risk assessment manager losing a son. It's just, it's funny hearing a Billy, this gangster, like, oh, it's this guy from Starfish Capital. I don't think he ever says Starfish Capital. He does. He says those words, which just cracked me up. I remember hearing him say, when one of us gets killed, the newspaper doesn't run it, but when it's an executive white collar type. But I found it funny that they're sitting around this table because we get the scene where Billy, he's the gang leader played by Garrett Hedlund, who I looked him up. We've reviewed him in a couple things like Tron Legacy means nothing to me, this actor. Okay, a background character. <laughs> no, he was the star of Tron Legacy. Really? Okay, wow. He was the son. Flynn Jr. Yeah, Friday Night Lights, the movie. He, he was, at this point, he was being prepped to be a, a leading man. And he comes in and pours out a little liquor for Joe and is all upset. And one of the gang members is like, well, I was talking to my sister and she saw a guy in a suit. And he just walks over to this gang bar that has a newspaper right there, today's paper. And he goes, find out if this is it. The gang member then goes to the waitress of the bar who is his sister. And she's like, yep, yep, that's the man. <laughs> 
That was a little funny to me. It was a convenience that this bar was a nexus of all information in gangland. But you know what? Again, I'll go with efficient because it's going to lead to some good action. And again, I say realistic. You kill a gang member in retaliation. This is the whole thing about gang warfare is everybody just keeps one-upping. I, again, lived in a college town when a gang war went on. One gang killed another gang's member, so they killed two more at the subway on my campus and then more were killed back and forth. So we're seeing this. The difference is Nick isn't a gang member. He's not prepped for this. But once he killed Joe, they're out for him. And what this scene tells me, because I'm sitting there, I'm like, man, th this is weird. This whole gang is real broken up over Joe, who had just been initiated. He's got to be a family member or something. We saw John Goodman's character earlier. I'm like, he's got to be related to him or something. There there's something more going on here because, sure, it's an efficient way to get to the action. But I'm like, this whole gang wouldn't be that broken up over a new member. But the fact that we're going to find out that Billy and Joe are brothers and they're the sons of Bones, John Goodman's character, this scene tells me that. What is John Goodman doing? Doing in this movie and Stuart you asked the question what does Kevin Bacon bring to a role I have to ask at this point what John Goodman brings to a role having seen him in Atomic Blonde I mean I traditionally think of him as a comedian Roseanne and Blues Brothers 2000 but he did do Coen Brothers I know he played a little bit dangerous but comedic dangerous in Lebowski here I don't quite get his place in the gang I mean, he rules them. It's like he's the mafia and they're his block enforcers. Of course, this is me trying to figure it out when they're not revealing the familial relations. Yeah, here's the thing. We have a perfect family and then we have the imperfect family. And they're drawing heavy parallels to the fact that Nick is like Bones. John Goodman and Kevin Bacon have similar roles with two sons. One's the leader of a gang and one's a fledgling that hasn't proven himself yet. And I don't know why they're drawing these parallels because ultimately the movie's not going to deliver on any of it. What I'm getting to is this movie couldn't wait to get to this point and now it has nothing to do. I can't believe that they've rushed 25 minutes to get here and then we spend an hour of just kind of twiddling our thumbs. You say we get to the action, we get to one action scene. A very long chase. It's a good one. I'm going to compliment it. I think the parking lot scene is the best action scene in any Death Wish movie, but it's only one scene. Yeah, it is a long scene, though. It is a great chase. I'm watching this scene, and I'm getting winded because Kevin Bacon is running so much, and he is breathing so hard as these gang people chase after him through uh, alleyways. And I, I mean, the way Juan filmed it, it had claustrophobia to me. I wondered if every turn Nick was going to hit a dead end, but he gets into some kitchen and to a parking garage where they have this really long single take that does multiple stories of the parking garage from the outside this is a great action scene great I, I don't know I feel like it's a lot of running we're gonna see Nick set off some car alarms to confuse the gang members I think he was calling for help I tried to figure out the car alarm strategy because it's revealing his location he's like gang members I'm here but he kept running in that direction so it wasn't like setting off a car alarm and going the other way yeah he was like slipping over the concrete barriers to change his direction I don't know yeah it could have been for help it could have been to confuse the gang I'm not sure I'm just not, I'm not 
not going to say it's great, though. I'm sure of that. Well, here's the thing. I think it's well staged. It is, as someone that likes to look at the camera moves, the steady cam, all of that. There is a one sequence where, yeah, we cover three different levels of a parking lot in one shot and watch a whole bunch of running and different characters doing their thing. That's impressive. I guess the question they ask here is at this point, we have no reason to believe that Kevin Bacon can compete. There's no reason to think that he could take down any of these gang members, and yet, once he's backed into a corner, or as it were, once he's at the top of the parking structure, and a guy with a gun pops out, all of a sudden, he's Mr. Action. But barely. He's able to wrestle a dude with a gun and kill him, like get a car to go off a ledge to kill the guy. I couldn't do that, and I watch a lot of action movies, I think I know what to do, but no. I don't buy that this character is doing any of this. More to the point, I don't think we're asked to think that he couldn't. The way that I take it is that I don't think that he's afraid. He seems pretty confident smashing this guy's head in the door and rolling the car out. He seems to be in control of this. He seems to be much like the Charles Bronson character, one step ahead of everyone else. I don't think so, though, because he came here out of fear. What I didn't get until the very end of the chase, he pulls out his keys and unlocks his car. I'm like, wait, this is his parking garage he parked here? I thought he was just randomly running and trying to escape. He was running to his car. He asked the lady in the kitchen that he's running through. He's like, what direction is this street? So I figured he's trying to get to his car. But when there's just one and he realizes he has no choice, fight or flight, he has fled as far as he can flee. And now it's time to fight. I, I don't get fear. The guy's got a gun, though. You don't win in a gunfight when you bring nothing. He came up behind him and took the gun away from the guy, though. And we end up with a pretty fun car rolling off of a parking garage death. I enjoyed this for what it was. And again, Nick wasn't like what Charles Bronson would do. Charles Bronson would take this scene and all the gang members would be dead. Here, Nick is still trying to escape. The fact that he had to take out another gang member along the way, it's going to piss off the gang even more. It's going to increase their bloodlust for Nick. But it doesn't seem to me like a Charles Bronson, I'm in control of the situation. It seemed like what Nick needed to do to escape. I guess what would have helped me is as efficient as the beginning of this film is, like Stuart has pointed out, we're going to get a whole lot of downtime. Set up something with Nick. Like, maybe he has this angry side that comes out. He's mild man. You know, he sees his son get illegally hooked at a hockey game, and he, like, goes ballistic or something. I don't know. My problem is with Kevin Bacon, the way he's playing this Nick, I just don't buy that all of a sudden he's going to be able to outlast this entire gang. We have no history with him whatsoever, other than that he's just lived a perfect life of no stress and trauma. Now, I'm picking up on a word you said, Arnie. Fun. You're thinking that when you're watching this, you're applauding, you're smiling. I feel like what we should be feeling, and I don't know if it's the intention or not, is fear. We should be anxious. This should be a tense moment of, can the nerd get away from the bullies? I definitely felt fear. And it's rare for me to feel fear in any film. But when he was in that chase and taking those turns, and I credit Juan with his camera movements and everything on this, I was really afraid for Nick, even though intellectually I knew that he wasn't going to die this early in the film. But I was truly scared for him. But I had fun with the camera moves, and I had fun once they got to the top and had that car rolling off. I was like, damn, that gang guy got his head slammed in a door twice and still has fight left in him. I don't think I would. 
Okay, because when you say fun in an action movie, I usually think of something like Arnold or Sly or something like that. That's not the way I'm taking it. I'm still looking at it as this guy got lucky and he really, yeah, he was backed into an area and just because he was parked on that level is the only reason he got away. I think it is a good chase sequence. I do think it works. I can see why it might be on his reel and got him the job on Fast and Furious 7. James Wan did a good job with this sequence. It's the rest of the movie that I struggle with. Up to this point, I more or less feel like this is one of the better Death Wish movies. And then, where are we going? Well, right here, we're at the halfway point. And I'll agree, it feels like it takes a little while to get going again after this moment. There's a couple extra scenes. I saw the scene where Billy is going through Nick's wallet and pulls out 200 bucks to pay for the funeral of Joe. And there's a scene that I think really added something in this unrated cut where we still don't know John Goodman's the dad, but it's another scene between John Goodman's bones and then Billy here where they're coming out of the funeral home and Bones comes and really berates Billy and goes on this huge spiel about how you work for me and one of you, if you guys don't get your head out of your ass, is going to end up bleeding in my trunk. Which one of you is going to be bleeding in my trunk? Whatever you think you're doing is important. It isn't. What's important is your work for me. It's Bones saying, give up on this revenge bullshit. Get back to work. Focus on what's important. And the scene ends with Billy saying, if you care, Joe's getting cremated later on. In retrospect, that scene has a lot of weight now that we know it's one son talking to his father about another dead son and the father showing no real remorse for the dead son. But it is just elongating this while Bones and Billy are arguing and Nick has to go to the cops but doesn't want to say what he did. It takes a little while to get to the next step. But there is no next step, is my point. I don't feel like the movie has anywhere else to go. And then we just fall back into, I'm going to get you silliness. Like, really, the gang's next plot is to send a fake courier to the office to send him a box of photos of his family with their face X'd out? I was just really disturbed that Nick would open that package. You don't know if that's a letter bomb in there with that. I think that's Bodie delivering it, like going past security. I, I think that's when you call the cops. But I guess, you know, we've had Detective Wallace, Aisha Tyler. I hope she didn't give up her role in the soup for this movie. <laughs> but, you know, she's been in the background. She was there at Joe's death. She finds that broken hockey stick that Nick used in the car parking lot. She's starting to put things together. But I, is that why Nick isn't calling the police right away? I mean, he's going to go home after he gets the soup case, but I think once this guy breaks into your work, you get the cops involved right away. I think he did get them involved almost immediately after that. That was Bodhi, played by the actor who's also in X-Men First Class. He was Darwin. Yeah, I recognized him. I'd seen him on in a stage production. He's really a fine actor. I look forward to a film where they actually use him properly. <laughs> yeah, Aloha is not that film, by the way. I've seen that. The one gang member I didn't catch, and both of you guys have seen him in different stuff. Lee Winnell is in here, Juan's co-writer of Saw. He was one of the stars of Saw. He was Specs in the Insidious films. He's apparently one of the gang members named Spink, but I never saw him. You didn't see them because they don't spend any time on these gang members. They're an anonymous bunch of people that are just yes men to the brother that's angry who didn't care enough to pick up his brother during the initiation, but now is so angry that he's got to kill the guy. This just isn't a very good conflict for the second half of a movie that started off asking us about whether vigilante justice is moral. 
Detective Wallace is going to leave two cops outside the house to watch over them once Nick does decide to call the police. And you're bad gang members. You, you kill the cops, but you let like one fall on the horn, so that's just honking. I thought there's only like two gang members in the house. So you're going to find out there's more. But you're right, Stuart. Like they're all generic except Billy and Bodie. Yeah, you can't distinguish one from the other. They don't have individual personalities, and they all want the same thing. They want this family dead. To me, this just feels like redundancy. Like this was the same conflict we had at the beginning of the movie of oh you killed my family again okay well now you're gonna get even more mad this is not the right conflict for the middle of the movie see I, I saw this as escalation back and forth if Nick had left well enough alone he would have lost a son and Joe would have gone to jail for five years but because Nick took things into his own hands and he's ended up killing two of their gang members now they're going to come and they think it's over they're gonna kill all three of them plus two cops I saw the escalation there you don't kill a cop once you do that, the entire police force is after you. You can disable cops, you can do whatever to cops, but once you kill a cop, you're really gonna bring shit down on Bones. I thought Bones was gonna kill them all for killing the cops, actually. The thing to do would be to kill Kelly Preston and the kid, and then send their head in the box with the courier. You don't tell them, I'm gonna kill your family, and then wait 12 hours. And you gotta double tap. One in the chest, one in the head. Make sure they're dead. Yeah, check vital signs, people. This is, yeah, they think they're dead because they, they winged him? Come on. Yeah, Kevin Bacon's just got one in the side. I'm like, oh, well, he's obviously still alive. These gang members have to kill someone to get in. They don't have to pass an SAT test, okay? They're not smart. They're gang members. Well, they're not living up to their initiation. At least for their initiation, they actually murdered someone. They're not even doing that right here. Yeah, you can't tell me the rest of this movie is satisfying as action or drama. I think that it's satisfying as action in a revenge film, straw dogs kind of way. Straw dogs? This break into the house was suspenseful to you? Throwing an urn? Falling down the stairs? I thought that it was showing them invading Nick's home and Nick needs to get his final revenge. That was five seconds, Arnie. That was not like 25 minutes of the movie of trying to stop them coming in. Straw Dogs is about keeping them out with all sorts of inventive traps. This is, hey, we're in your house already and you're dead. No, I'm talking about the theme of Straw Dogs, about being a man protecting your family and a man having to face violence that you're not used to. I'm not talking about this home invasion being the equivalent of Straw Dogs. But that's not this movie. Nick invited all of this by not following justice, the law. He brought all this on himself. That's not the case with Straw Dogs. Not only that, but you just complimented the movie as action. Not for themes, not for drama, for the action, which is weak. The rest of this movie is really boring. I like the climax at the end of the film. This house scene is not very good action because that's not what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be scary, a little bit horrific because there's no fighting back. Action implies fights on both sides. This is an assassination. Well, Nick does fight back a little bit. Home Invasion, like you were saying, Arnie, that you're feeling for Nick, th that he was in danger during that chase. Home Invasion movies, like, make me very anxious. It's like one of those, I don't know if it's an irrational fear, but it is one of those things that really does scare me. I'm not feeling anything during this scene when these guys are coming into their home. Yeah, don't call this straw dogs. Don't even go near that with this movie here. It's, no, we broke into your house and now we shot, yeah, your wife and your kid. And so it's just repeating the start of this thing. You can call it escalation. To me, it feels like redundancy. The point is he uses his son's survival just as a means of escaping police custody. 
which Paul Kiersey did in Death Wish 3. Was this actually in Death Sentence? Was there an escape out of hospital window? There is nothing in this movie in Death Sentence. Okay. Not one moment, character, or even location. Okay, because I knew some of the Death Wish sequels took certain action beats from Death Sentence. So I didn't know if that was one, since it's the same. I don't think Death Wish 3 took anything from any book. But <laughs> this is where James Wan has said he wanted to go into taxi driver territory. The head shaving, the guns, the shooting off of fingers. He was trying to pay homage to the De Niro flick. So he actually did name Taxi Driver, because my wife is like, what is this bullshit taxi driver ripoff shit going on? Like, it made are very angry. Yeah, this always makes me sad when we have these music video style guys that evoke, oh, I'm going to be Kubrick or Jan Debont. He thought that his haunting was like The Shining. It's Look, just because you give somebody a mohawk doesn't mean you're taxi driver. It's not even a whole mohawk. It's like a backhawk. Yeah, <laughs> they have not even begun to earn that comparative. I was just confused by this montage. You know, this is Rambo lacing up his boots and putting the headband on type montage. You keep going back, like, I guess they shot it out of sequence because you keep going back to him shaving his head. I'm like, is he like just shaving his head a little bit at a time or are they just cutting this non-chronologically? Yeah, it's a montage. I'm sure he shaved his head all in one sitting and meanwhile, he's loading bullets and all of that. Again, I've shot guns. I'm cracking up that he's reading the manuals. Like, this is our hero. Like, we believe at this point, going into the third act, the, the final climax, this risk assessment manager's got to read the manual to a gun to defeat the bad guys. Well, this isn't going to work. This is silly. I have also shot guns. I don't even know if guns come with manuals, but I like that because he overpaid for the guns. He's a preferred customer who gets the manuals. And the only gun dealer in this South Carolina town is, of course, Bones, John Goodman. And it's at this scene where we find out John John Goodman is the father of both Joe and Billy, and he seems to sign off on it. Like, one father to another, don't tell me you're going to do it. But because Bones was so abusive to Billy in scenes I saw that wasn't in your guys' cut and in the regular film, I believed it that he was more gang member than father and Billy had fucked up enough times that Bones was going to wash his hands and do what's best for the business. In the R-rated cut, the only sense you get why Bones would want his son dead is because early on in the movie, like, Billy like tosses some stuff on his table full of guns and he's like, you know, don't mess with the merchandise. Like, I had no idea why this father was signing off on his son's death. It's fine. I mean, I, it makes it interesting. I mean, I get that without having to have an, any other scene. All right, we think that blood is thicker than water, and no, in this case, it's not. But then they waffle on that. Then later, we find out, oh, no, I was just doing what you wanted and selling this guy guns because you wanted me to. And the son's response to that is to kill him. Huh? I think that scene that was cut from your version does help. Bones was basically an abusive father. No, I, we got one scene of him saying, don't you bring me back this little money again or I'll know that you're shorting me. But shooting him after he did what you said? He didn't do anything Bones said, though. Bones did what the kid asked for and sold the guy guns. They knew that he was doing that. And that was all part of the plan for a twist that seems to have no sense about it at all. And again, what are we getting out of having these family dynamics? What does it mean to know that Kevin Bacon had two sons, lost one, and is going to keep going, endangering his other, and the same is true of Bones? I don't see anything important about that. No, I don't think anything's done with that. That's bad writing, then. Don't waste our time on something that doesn't mean anything. 
Well, I think it means something in that we have a father who is willing to sacrifice his kids and one who's willing to sacrifice himself to avenge his kids. Does it? I mean... I don't know if that means anything in the context of this film. I think it draws parallels and leaves you to contrast your own and bring your own opinions. No, I, I think they half-ass wrote something. Yeah. <laughs> I ain't gonna interpret anything here because this is gonna end up just being a gory action shootout by the end. And I want to say I did enjoy the one other script that this writer has produced, The Grey. I thought that was a good combo of story about machismo and like a wilderness adventure movie. I thought that combination worked. And it's hard to know whether it was the directing or the writing. But here, I just feel like we've spent an inordinate amount of time breaking down these family dynamics and contrasting haves with have-nots and privilege versus destitution. And I don't see anything coming out of it. No connections whatsoever. Nor has it been a satisfying shoot-em-up. Yeah, you said James Wan is trying to get away from the horror scene. Well, one, don't put Jigsaw painting a Jigsaw in the background to remind everyone. Technically, it's a painting of Billy behind Billy, and it's on Stygian Street, which is where Jigsaw's headquarters was in the first Saw film. So it makes me wonder if, in fact, this movie is taking place in the same town as Saw. Like, could we get a crossover? Hello, Nick. You thought you wanted revenge. Now let's see how far you're willing to go. Sounds more interesting than this film. I mean, like when a guy gets his leg blown off, yeah, there, there's some good stuff here, but I'm not caring at all. I don't care if Nick shoots everyone, if he dies, I don't care by the end. Man, now you're reminding me why this doesn't matter. Saw, that's right. The whole movie about <laughs> would you cut off your leg to save yourself. These are very superficial questions that are asked of the audience. I hated that film, so. Yes, which is why I came on to Now Playing, because you didn't want to do it. <laughs> yeah, that, that probably did have something to do with the fact you're on that retrospective. But now that you've drawn those comparatives, it really helps me understand why this movie is so dissatisfying. It's asked so much. It's been so pretentious in laying out the motives and the characters that I I can't understand the simplicity of what it's built to it's because I just don't like that it's so simple and in fact it was something you said during the Conjuring series Stuart that made me find fault in this film you said Juan is good with traps with games you know the clap game in the Conjuring or the spike mask in Saw what have you Insidious had its various games here I feel this is awfully straightforward I felt like there should have been some kind of large scale game some kind of escalation jig Jigsaw-esque planning on behalf of the screenwriter, not necessarily any of the characters here, with the possible exception of John Goodman. If, like, the very end, we found out John Goodman put a lot of this into motion and played both sides to have his son killed or something, assuming John Goodman didn't die so randomly in the film. Yeah, maybe he took an insurance policy with Starfish Enterprises on his son, and this is his way to cash out. Yeah, the problem is we have several deaths, but I have nothing to say because it just feels like the end of Blade Runner or some stylish action shoot -em up from the 90s, some Luc Besson thing. Like, yeah, it looks cool that he's running through this meth lab slash church slash whatever. It was actually a insane asylum at one point that the set decorator then turned into a meth lab. Right. So, again, it's all about how it looks cool, but I just feel like whether he shoots 10 more guys or one, I'm not seeing anything being asked more of the characters. Yeah, when you get this kind of, I guess it's a Mexican stand. I mean, it's Bodie, Billy, and Nick at the end, and they're just blowing each other apart. I'm like, well, no one's living through this. Billy's going to sit down next to Nick, and I feel like this is supposed to be a real deep moment, but I'm not feeling it. And if you're not getting it, it's happening inside the chapel of the hospital. So, I don't know, religious stuff? 
Yeah. When in doubt, throw in a crucifix. That seems to be a real go-to for any action movie. Yes, that he's a martyr. I Okay. I liked the action here in that it was a lot of guns, a lot of shooting. The gang member counts seem to go up or down based upon the scene, which is why I feel I never saw Lee, is because sometimes, like, they're walking like reservoir dogs and there's dozen of them, and then they split up and they never get back together again. There's only three. I'm not sure how many people he's trying to kill. I did like it when he stole one of the muscle cars and rammed through a van, but then I noticed he got out of that car. He never buckled up. How did he even survive that car? crash to go in and kill people but this is where the film really differs and admittedly we're talking in the last five minutes from a death wish film because charles bronson would have come in here blown all these people away and walked out with some kind of quip and some cheesy 80s music here this is a guy who's on a suicide route he knows that this is suicide by proxy he's going in there he thinks both of his sons and his wife are dead he has nothing more to live for he said that halfway through the movie and i really liked that turn he says it to the detective i don't care about myself i just want my wife and son to be okay he never goes back to caring about himself when he thinks they're gone he just wants this revenge but i think it's a little bit both on the nose and heavy-handed when billy is sitting next to him bleeding out is like look what i did to you i turned you into one of us look at your haircut it's like really you're dying you just killed your father your entire gang is dead but you're gonna pull some heavy-handed look at your haircut bullshit (laughs) yeah again i am surprised at how little it's meant for this average guy to go to the dark side these movies usually have some reason there's something to be said about taking this journey here i'm not feeling it I think that what it says is that this kind of revenge leads to only mutually assured destruction. Yeah, but you've given us a really stylistic limbs getting blown off. I feel like, don't make it so fun to watch then. Yeah, and I mean, that's also a very rudimentary point that has been made a million times. That It didn't do anything new. And he knew very well that his son was in a coma. So he knew his son was alive when he went in here and said, I have nothing to live for. But he doesn't know if his son will ever come out of the coma. The son has shown no signs of life. The doctor can't give optimistic appraisals. The son doesn't show signs of life until after Nick leaves. So that's supposed to be the irony. I couldn't figure out why he's so shocked that his son's coming out of it. You didn't really give it much time. Yeah, you get this corny shot where Wallace like sees Lucas's fingers moving and yeah. It's bad. I would feel a whole lot better about it if they weren't layering pilot speed on this with, I'm not all right. All this emo rock is just (laughs) the worst. It kills any scene that might kind of work. Well, does the movie kind of work? Jacob Stewart, will you give this film a death sentence? Jacob? Yeah, lethal injection, the chair, firing squad. You pick how you want to put this one to death. Uh, This movie to me, again, it feels like a lifetime movie with all the family dynamics and the son that's jealous of his brother and violent scenes like put in throughout. Just the music, especially that damn choir is is just so bad. It just, it kills this movie for me. My biggest problem though is Kevin Bacon. Just like I said with Charles Bronson and, and all those Death Wish films, like he's kind of like the most boring thing, but it's Charles Bronson. We know he knows how to shoot a gun my problem with kevin bacon here is i just don't buy him as this badass that's gonna go all travis bickle on a gang they never set him up as that kind of character and so i'm just laughing throughout this because i'm not buying into any of it 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 never gets me on nick's side that he can become this badass that could kill this gang and if you want to look for deeper themes i guess they're there i don't think this is making a case against 
vigilanteism. This is very sophomoric with any kind of commentary it's trying to do. This is a strong not recommend for me. Stuart. I would say this. It does kind of work. There are things about it that work in a superficial action movie kind of way. It efficiently gets the main character to a quandary that he responds to by becoming a killing machine. But then there's 40 minutes of the rest of it that neither feels satisfying as an action movie or as a drama. And I, I think that's why it's going to get the red arrow, is that it just decides to stop midway through and not develop any of its themes, just repeat its themes. And I think Kevin Bacon is pretty good here. He usually is, but his character doesn't have a whole lot of dimension, and neither does this movie. Maybe neither does Juan. He's very flashy and stylish, but maybe he should stick to Fast and Furious movies where he's not asked to think about complicated real-world themes. And I'm going to give this movie a solid recommend. First of all, of the Death Wish films before Bruce Willis, this is the best. And I'd say it's the worst. I think that this is a much more down-to-earth Death Wish film. The more realistic, if your son was randomly killed and you decided to take justice into your own hands, what kind of escalation would that bring? To me, it has some of the same themes as the Nolan Batman films when it comes to escalation. Yeah, but Bruce Wayne be trained to become a ninja. Kevin Bacon doesn't do that here. That's why I don't buy into it. Yeah, Bacon kind of does. And I like the performances here. I enjoyed the on-screen. What really pushes this from a weak recommend to a solid recommend, though, is Juan and his camera work and the scenes he filmed. That garage scene has stuck with me. I really, really like that garage scene a lot. I mean, I think that garage scene is a green arrow right there. Even if you have to sit through two hours of movie to enjoy a 15-minute garage scene, that garage scene is that good. And the rest of the action is well-filmed and stylish. I enjoy Juan's sense of inner-city gloom, despite being a pretty nameless inner-city. We never knew where Saw was taking place, either. It's just faceless, dirty city full of crime. And I actually want to compliment this film for some racial politics. The fact that the only African-American gang member we have is Bodhi, and that our police detective, who's really on top of things, is African-American, they avoided racial stereotypes and some ugly racial politics that way. I would say that's whitewashing. I would say the fact that it was a mixed-race gang is probably very unrealistic i just i'm just gonna say that yeah i mean that's a way of saying oh we're not going to offend anyone we wouldn't want anyone to think about real issues well it was a racially diverse cast with some asians and some african-americans but yeah mostly white people i just was happy that it wasn't a white guy killing a bunch of poor black people yeah, I mean, to me, this movie ducked that issue entirely. I don't know I would champion it for that. But yes, it took that off the table. It didn't want that criticism to be lobbed at it. So, no, I enjoyed this movie so much more than I expected to. It's not a must-see. It's not a great film, but that's a great action scene. And I think this film is perfectly fine. If you want to see the best Death Wish movie, here it is. More than the first film. More than the first film. I think that Kevin Bacon takes me on a better emotional journey than Charles Bronson is capable of doing. Even though I like Charles Bronson with his hand shaking and that in the first film. Bacon, I know the shower scene had some bad music, but that scene hit me harder than Bronson's handshakes ever did. What's frustrating about it is it really does want to be taken seriously. I just don't see that it's that deep. I don't see that it does anything new. I agree. It's a really good action scene and some pretty good performances and is it nearly as bad as some of those Death Wish sequels? Those Death Wish sequels had villains. Think about Death Wish 5. At least those villains were entertaining. Yeah. I'm not entertained by these villains even. 
Honestly, I feel like the movie might have been more interesting from the wife perspective. I mean, I, we've seen fathers lose it many times, but what it would it have been if the wife had been more active with her husband in getting revenge, or it had been her story? I don't know. A twist, a novelty. I just didn't feel like this movie had anything new to offer. But I think it had stuff new to offer over the other ones. It felt more down-to-earth and less action movie. Other than, yes, perhaps the first Death Wish where he didn't even find Jeff Goldblum. But all the others are just so over the top. I think you're overselling the drama of Death Sentence. I disagree. I enjoyed the drama far more than you did. I would never equate it with a Lifetime movie. But that is it for our Death Wish retrospective series. It's no Death Wish reboot. That's been pushed to March. Yes, they move the end game to next year. But yeah, there's a big movie we still need to do before we get to the end of the year. Star Wars in two weeks. What would be a good lead up to it? Well, how about another sci-fi classic? One that had been requested by one of our generous donors. Yes, 12 Monkeys, our first Terry Gilliam review. Classic, maybe a cult classic. The people who love it are hardcore lovers of that film, I feel. I don't know how wide that love is. They made a TV series out of it. It's in the IMDb Top 250 Movies. It has grown in esteem since I saw it back in theaters. It's been a long time since I'd seen the movie, but Arnie, you and I, and a new host, are going to be talking about it next week. Yes, Matt is joining us because our book is available right now in ebook form. The printed book's coming soon. It is a great last-minute Christmas gift if you are shopping for a loved one. And Matt was one of our Kickstarter backers, the only one to choose the reward of coming on the show to host a movie with us of his choosing. So if you want to read that book with 125 reviews, you can order it and the audiobook at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash book. And then... Hear us next week as Matt joins us to talk 12 Monkeys. Also, speaking of supporting the show, there's the book. This Friday, we have another review coming. Hellraiser Hellseeker. That is available for people who donate $25 or more. If you donate now, you will get reviews of all five Phantasm films that have been released and all seven Hellraiser reviews as we work our way towards the 9th and someday the 10th, whenever they get around to putting that out on video. And let's face it, it's all four theatrical Hellraiser films and then there's some bonus features we're doing here. Thank you to all of our supporters and everyone who has gotten the book. And Jacob and Stuart, thank you for joining me through this Death Wish series. And now, your final Death Wish has been granted. Oh, I'll be back soon. It's not necessary. It is for me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing's Death Wish Retrospective Series. If they hadn't have broken us up, I would have killed you. Next time, you won't even see me coming. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Are you getting the most out of life? Are you satisfied, fulfilled, happy? For more movie review podcasts, visit the nowplayingpodcast.com archives. <laughs> oh, what a bummer, man. That was the worst fucking movie I've ever seen. There you'll find hundreds of film reviews, including Die Hard, John Wick, the Jason Bourne series, Kingsman, Machete, the Marvel Comics movies, and more. And come back each week for another new movie review. Hope you guys have a good time tonight. Enjoy yourselves, huh? You know where to come back to if you want some more. Now Playing relies on listener support to keep operating. 
For our podcast's 10th anniversary, we have released over 150 donation podcasts through our Podbean page. I ain't known for my community spirit. Show me some money. Available there are series like The Matrix, the Quentin Tarantino films, Planet of the Apes, Jurassic Park, Aliens, and much more. Give me the money, homeboy. <laughs> Give me the money now. It's collection time, Charlie. <laughs> collection time. Links to our Podbean page are available from nowplayingpodcast.com. You may beg, you son of a bitch. Please. You can also join our Podbean crowdfunding campaign to help our show grow. Backers of $10 or more will receive exclusive bonus podcast reviews, including Lego Batman, Get Out, Galaxy Quest, Hook, The Warriors, and Coherence. A link to our patron page is at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. My heart bleeds a little for the underprivileged, yeah. Stick them in concentration camps, that's what I say. We want to especially thank our Podbean donors of $50 or more, Joseph Black, Jacob Parkins, Anders Marath, and David Billington. Well, that makes you a preferred customer. Also at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash book, you can order Now Playing's film review collection, Underrated Movies We Recommend. This book has 125 reviews about films you probably haven't seen, but you should. You're a writer. Write about it. Want to take part in the discussion? Join the Now Playing hosts at our forums where you and other listeners can give your thoughts on this movie review. The links to our forums is at nowplayingpodcast.com. Might amuse you, though. Being from New York, maybe you've never seen a club like this. You can also follow Now Playing on Google+, Facebook, and Twitter. There, the hosts post new episode announcements, movie reviews, and contests where you can win movies and soundtracks. Can we just all please... Be civilized for once before I kill somebody. You can also help out Now Playing by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. A link to Now Playing's iTunes listing can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. I'm so glad you wanted to come along. The more people that understand our work, the better. Now Playing's Death Wish series is produced by Arnie Carvalho. You're tough. Yeah, you really are. Just a matter of keeping busy, Sam. Now Playing's Death Wish series is edited by Heath and Arnie. The guard said you were here after midnight last night. Yeah, that's the way I work. Now Playing's Death Wish series credits announced by Brock. I underestimated O'Shea. It's not going to happen again. The Death Wish films, all audio clips and music used, are the property of the respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast has not been prepared, approved, or licensed by any entity that created or produced the well-known Death Wish films or novels. Now Playing is an independent movie review podcast with no affiliation with any company involved in the publishing, creating, or distribution of that film or book series. You're not thinking of going back to your old ways, are you? Is that such a bad idea? Let the cops take these guys down. You know, sometimes the law works. And sometimes it doesn't. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. Some people would say that was an extreme position. I don't care. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2017. All rights reserved. 
and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. Whatever you little fucks think is important, ain't important. So stop! Stop it right now! Goodbye. And this is your loving and loyal kiss-ass, Jacob. You, you don't kiss ass enough, I think. I, I, I could use some more ass kissing to go to that old pretty woman joke. He's married to Helen, played by Kelly Preston. Talk about a person. What the hell is she doing? <laughs> I feel like she spent her entire life crying. <laughs> I know she spends her, this movie doing that. She probably spends the rest of her life doing that married to Travolta. But... That's, I wasn't trying to underline that, Arnie, but I think that was there. Oh, I thought you just meant all of her movie roles. No. Nick goes to the police, and Detective Jessica Wallace, played by Aisha Tyler, puts two cops outside Nick's home. Yeah, there's nothing that happens until the end of the movie. <laughs> there's like an hour of nothing. It's like all the movie happens in the first 20 minutes. None of these gangbangers are African-American with the exception of Darwin. You mean Bodie? Well, Darwin in uh, X-Men. Well, I, I don't know why you'd call him his X-Men character, <laughs> No though. one knows his name of that either. 